I bought a bag of potato chips in Massachusetts, and I bought the same bag of potato chips, the same brand in Europe, the ones in Europe are healthier for me because there's less sodium in them, because that's the requirement. Like, why is that? I mean, how do we even tolerate that? I get it. Salt is supposed to be addictive, and you'll want to have 100 bags, but come on. On September 28th, for the first time in 50 years, the White House held a conference on food, nutrition, and health. This year's conference comes as millions of families across the country struggle to access high-quality calories. In 2021 alone, 13.5 million households were food insecure. And in June of 2022, more than 24 million Americans reported that they sometimes or often did not have enough to eat during the week. Why do so many families struggle with food insecurity in this country? And why, in the past 50 years, have we seen such a giant increase in chronic diseases like obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and cancer, not only in adults, but in children, too? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with food leaders of different types to understand America's relationship with food and the resulting impact on all of us, particularly our most vulnerable communities. Today, I'm joined by Representative Jim McGovern, who represents District 2 in Massachusetts and is the co-chair of the House Hunger Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. Representative McGovern has spent his career focused in part on food insecurity and ending hunger. Representative McGovern, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. I appreciate you being here. I'm thrilled to be with you. That's great. So I want to talk to you a lot about food and the conference that you championed down in Washington. But I wonder first, could you just tell me a little bit, because I don't know this, how did you end up in public service and in Congress? Well, you know, I, I became interested in politics when I was in middle school. There was a presidential election going on. It was 1972, and it was, the race was between Richard Nixon, who was the incumbent president, and he was being challenged by Senator George McGovern, a Democrat from South Dakota. I became enthralled with the news about George McGovern's campaign. I thought he had a great last name, and uh, (laughs) he was talking about ending the war in Vietnam. He was talking about civil rights and human rights, and he was talking about protecting the environment and about ending hunger. As a young middle school student, I was attracted to that vision. And so I volunteered on his campaign and was thrilled that he won Massachusetts, a little depressed that he lost 49 other states. But fast forward to when I went to college at American University in Washington, I worked my way through college working in his office as a paid intern. And he was the chair of the the Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, focusing a lot on the issue of hunger. I got to sit through a lot of those hearings and briefings. And so it, it made an impression on me. And then After that, I went to work for Congressman Joe Moakley of South Boston and then ran myself in 1996 and lightning struck and I won. But I was determined to make those issues of nutrition and and hunger a centerpiece of what my career would be about. That's so interesting. And so you learned sitting in those seats and being in those roles, you learned about all of the different things that are challenges for America. And how did nutrition stick with you? Why was it the thing that you wanted to kind of deeply pursue? Well, because if you want to end food insecurity and hunger, it's more than just about handing people whatever. Because if you hand people whatever, then you you solve one problem and you create another problem. George McGovern worked very closely with Bob Dole, who's a Republican from Kansas, 
the issue of nutrition and setting dietary goals and and learning about what's good for you and what's not and spreading the word so that people had the information about what was nutritious and what wasn't was very, very important to both of them. And they made some progress and then we kind of backslided. But I've been in Congress now for a while and I tour lots of hospitals and I deal with lots of doctors. I visit lots of schools and the link between nutrition and significant health challenges is crystal clear. Uh, We know that diabetes is diet related. We know that heart disease can be diet related. We know that high blood pressure is diet related. And yet we act as if it isn't. Our health systems are divorced from uh, nutrition by and large. There's some exceptions, but our school systems are too. I mean, I don't know when it became okay in school to not teach about nutrition, agriculture, or, or even how to prepare food. But for whatever reason, it's a afterthought. And we ought to change that. Growing up, were you, did you come from a family that thought about food? I particularly, my father was very insistent that we not eat particular things. So we ate them when he wasn't around. But, uh, you know, I was raised around this notion that there were things that were good for your body and not good for your body. How about you? No. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I mean, if my mother hears this, she'll, she'll tell, she'll, she'll yell at me. But the deal is, you know, we, we grew up in a, a family where, you know, we had fried fish and chips on Fridays and we, you know, hot dogs and franks and beans on Saturday. And I mean, my kids are, are much more aware of what a nutritious diet is than I was. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the Tang generation. I mean, yeah, you know, where right. nobody ever talked about any of this stuff. But things are changing for the better. And I think that's that's a good thing. But look. A better diet for everybody, and I, and again, I don't. You don't have to be, you know, totally healthy on everything, right? I mean, that's the problem. We have this debate: is people think that you know to to eat in a way that is actually good for you is somehow punitive. And no, mm-hmm. it doesn't have. It is not. It is not right. My kids are, are much more aware of that, and I'm grateful for that. They learned it in school. Yeah. I hope they learned some of it from us. Yeah. That's something that will serve them for the rest of their life. And hopefully it will mean that they'll have a healthy and productive life. Yeah, I agree with you. Do you. So about, I would guess, less than a year ago, you decided that the White House should host another conference on food, nutrition, and health. It was extremely successful. And it was the first conference of its kind on those topics in 50 years. So the last one was held, as you said, when Nixon was in office. Why did you decide the time is now to do this? Well, actually, I've been pushing for it since the first term of the Obama administration. And while the Obama administration did some really good things on nutrition and healthier habits in general, we couldn't quite get them to elevate this topic to be the subject of a White House conference. But I thought that, that we, we ought to have a White House conference because that one the conference we had in 1969 actually produced some very powerful results. I mean, the WIC program, the Women's Infants and Children's Program came out of that. The food stamp program, now SNAP, came out of that. More attention to nutrition in schools, labeling, so that people of every background could actually get more information about what they were purchasing in in a grocery store. During the 1970s, we made some progress. George McGovern and Bob Dole deserve a lot of the credit for that. But then the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we started to backslide. So I thought it was time. We weren't able to do it. And then we had four years of Trump. And I didn't think that that was the appropriate time 
to push such a conference. And then when Biden became, got elected, even before he was sworn in, we were reaching out to him personally, uh, to the vice president, and to everybody that we was going to be part of his cabinet and said, we want to do this. And we organized the letter signed by every committee chair in the House, everything from the Veterans Committee to the Transportation Committee to the Ways and Means all of us signed these, this letter. And we pushed and pushed and pushed. And then I get some money in the appropriations bill to underwrite a conference. Yeah. Ambassador Susan Rice called and said, we're going to do it. I'm grateful that not only they did it, but they did it in a way that included some new voices. For example, in the 1969 conference, there weren't a lot of people with lived experiences who were at the table. This was different. We know a lot more today. There's a greater awareness of, you know, of not only nutrition, but we have some great models all around the country. You don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? The wheel's been invented. We just need to make sure we have enough wheels to put on the vehicles to drive forward. You talk about WIC and SNAP coming out of those conferences in the 60s is also when I think we started Medicaid and Medicare. The government started paying for health care for certain individuals in this country. Are there tangible things like those that you're hoping this conference results in and the aftermath results in? On the food is medicine front, we believe in things like food prescriptions and medically tailored meals. We believe that hospitals ought to do better in terms of elevating nutrition, not just to their patients, but to the people who visit the hospitals. I love Boston Medical Center. I mean, I've, I've been there a gazillion times. They were ahead of everybody, and they're still way ahead of everybody. And we need to make sure that all of our hospitals in Massachusetts and across the country kind of follow their example. They understand the linkage between nutrition and health. You know, I was at the University of California Davis Medical Center, and they have a program to actually improve the quality of meals they serve patients. And what they were saying is that people were coming into the hospital and they weren't eating the food when they were in the hospital. And nobody really thinks of hospitals and fine cuisine, right? Right. They suspected that that resulted in longer hospital stays. And so they hired a chef and they said, you know, here are the nutrition guidelines. Make this food taste good and smell good and, you know, make people want to eat it. And he did. And people are eating the food. They believe that they're actually shortening hospital stays. And not only that, hmm. the people who are who are patients are asking for recipes. And not only that, some of them don't know how to cook. And so they're asking, okay, where's the recipe? How do I actually prepare this? You know, what do I need? And so, you know, all these new linkages are, are happening that are all good, right? That's not the answer to everything, but little steps here and there can make a huge difference in the long run. So what you're talking about, and this is one of the questions I had when I was thinking about this conversation that we were going to have, is when the White House talks about ending hunger, are they talking about there not being enough calories for a person, for each person in America, or do they mean something else? Because it seems to me that we're talking more about malnutrition, right? lack of access to high quality calories that come from fresh produce and animals and seafood, as opposed to out of boxes and, and bags. Is that right? Is like, what exactly are we trying to do when we say we're trying to eradicate hunger in America? You know, hunger doesn't fit into a neat category, right? I mean, there are people I mean, who literally miss meals, who don't have access to anything. Uh, on a regular basis. So we, we, need to, uh, we need to solve that. The other thing is there are people who have access to 
a lot of calories, the lack of nutrition. Right. And we need to change that because those things result in diet-related diseases. So it's making sure that people have access not just to food, but but to good food. And, you know, at every level. I mean, they talked about universal free meals in our school. We want to do that, but we just don't want to. But, but that has to be about more than just we're giving you something. It has to be about the quality. And we also have to acknowledge that, again, it's complicated because some schools have kitchens. I mean, you, you I know you've worked very hard in this area. Some schools have kitchens. You can do a lot if you have a kitchen. You can cook from scratch. If you don't have a kitchen or you don't have refrigeration that's adequate, then you are in a whole different category. So we need to rebuild our infrastructure in that regard. I was in New York City about a month ago. I visited a project called Harlem Grown, and it's really a neat project about this guy who had an interesting past, got his life together. He came from a fairly well-off background, decided he was going to do something, and he decided, I'm I'm going to try to make sure that people in Harlem have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So he took over a couple of vacant lots, built a greenhouse and gardens and grew all this stuff. And then he said, I'm going to, I'm going to bring bags of good food to the kids who are in the schools across the street, have them bring them home to their parents. And this will be a trend. He had arugula and eggplant and squash and on and on and on. Gives them to the kids. The kids bring them home. He goes in two weeks later and says, you know, what happened? Were your parents thrilled? And he said, no, most of them said my parents threw it away. They didn't know what most of this stuff was. Not everybody has access to arugula. What do you do with a, with an eggplant? What do you do with a, with a sweet potato if you don't have a kitchen or a, an oven to, you know, to prepare it in? And he also found out that some of the kids actually live in shelters. It was much more complicated. So what he did was he expanded the program to work with some of the schools to have the kids help plant the seeds, grow the food, taste the food, learn how to prepare it, cooking classes for their parents. He has a free farmer's market for people in the community. And it's incredibly successful, but it's limited, right? It's He gets no city funding or state funding or federal funding. It's all based on philanthropy. But it's something that we ought to look at. And how do you scale it up? Right. Because these kids are learning important lessons on math, on science, on measurements, you name it. But they're also learning good habits that will last them for a lifetime. And that's the key. People my age, it's tougher to change. Education and schools have to play a big role in all of this. Yeah, I agree with you. I I find, at least in our work, and I'm wondering about your response to this, is if the folks who are at the table were the heads of hospitals across the country or across the state, the heads of uh, school districts, the heads of the medical schools, the heads of insurance companies, maybe. I mean, that's a very finite group of individuals who could have an unbelievable impact on culture shift if we were really connecting dots for people between what they're eating and how they're feeling or how things might play out in terms of health and wellness. But like, I guess my question is, we could pull together a very finite number of leaders who govern very significant pieces of this and get them bought into making change. Why why don't they come up with this on their own? Like the head of BMC did. Like why doesn't that matriculate across all hospitals? Or you know, and what like what's the downside of teaching more of this in medical schools? Like why why don't we shift more quickly? 
show um, on the medical school stuff and why nutrition is not emphasized. I mean, I, I talk to the heads of our medical schools. I even talk to the people who, who uh, do the accreditation for medical schools. And the answer I got was there are no questions on nutrition on the medical boards, which is a really stupid <laughs> mm. reason not to do it. Boy. And I'm like, we got to change that. So I, I, we actually passed a resolution saying you, this should be a priority for medical schools. Yeah. And we'll see whether anybody follows. If not, we'll come back with something more consequential in terms of legislation to make that happen. On the hospitals, I took a number of hospital heads to, be, to Boston Medical Center oh, I mean, about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody kind of said, oh, this is great, 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 great. Without naming those people, very little has been done. And I suspect, and, I, and this is, I don't want to sound cynical, you know, at the end of the day, hospitals have to make money, right? And so if, if I'm doing the prevention right, then I'm keeping you out of a hospital. right? And so th- it's like the incentives are a little bit perverse. So we need to be thinking, and we're talking with CMS and Medicare and, and you know, and others about, I mean, let's try to change the incentives so that there's a greater emphasis on prevention. I get it. I mean, look, if you want to you know, if you need open heart surgery, there's no better place in the world to be than in Massachusetts to have it done. But I'd rather have you not have to have open heart surgery. Right. <laughs> and so can we at least strike a balance here where we're coming in early on and saying, you know, we're going to do stuff to prevent you from getting there. Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, leading up to the conference, did a listening session at Gracie Mansion. And so he invited me to come. And it was really interesting. But what I what I didn't realize was his story which was that he had diabetes that was so out of control that his doctor said to him, you're going to lose you know, toes and fingers and probably your eyesight. Hmm. And then he went to another doctor who said, well, you know what? We can change this, but you're going to have to change your diet and your lifestyle. And he did. And now he, he I mean, I, you know, it, it looks like he's in great shape. In health, yeah. But the bottom line is, is that nutrition can not only prevent things from happening, it can, in some cases, reverse bad things. You know, you go to the doctors and they give you a prescription for a pill, and that's how they take care of you. And again, I I love the medical society and I love everybody who works in it, but we need to think out of the box and redesign how we approach healthcare. And this is part of it. Yeah, and how we talk to people about about what it means, which means that we have to make sure that our doctors are well-educated on that front, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I like what you're saying. I, I'm wondering about, so you talked also about how sometimes hunger means missed meals and not having, honestly, not having enough access to food and to calories. And, and I'm wondering what you think about the role of food banks across America, and I'll tell you why I think about this, is we helped the state quite a bit, this foundation did during COVID-19. And so we paid a lot of attention to food pantries and the food banks, which were really important in terms of getting and distributing food to folks. We also funded a guaranteed income program in Chelsea, and we just gave people cash. And they went to grocery stores and restaurants, and, and they bought the food that they preferred. And businesses were able to kind of light back up and hire people. And so I just wonder what you think about that. You know, would we be better served in some cases to just give people cash and trust them and send them to the supermarket as opposed to moving a whole bunch of food over into another space? You know, but but I understand there aren't markets everywhere. And so I'm just curious how you think about the whole system. 
Well, I like your model that you did in Chelsea. But to get to that, we need to do a lot of other things so that people actually have a place to go to buy their food. Look, I think all of us want to put food banks out of business at some point. Even the heads of food banks will tell you that they want to be put out of business. And food banks, depending on where you are, have turned into more than just food banks. I mean, they're they're places to provide skills and how to cook for people so, so they can help get a job. Or they, they do cooking classes and they do education on, you know, what a nutritious diet is all about. So food banks have evolved. But we have a problem in this country with what we call, some people call food deserts. I call them food apartheids because mm-hmm. deserts are natural. You know, food apartheids are, are kind of man-made. And they are in urban areas. I mean, the Bronx is one of the biggest food apartheids in the in the country. They're in rural areas. And that's a problem. So getting food to people in some places is challenging. I, I also believe in the dignity of choice, that I want people to have choices. My problem with like food boxes or, you know, here, take this, is that you have to take what I give you. I want to have some choice. This whole food sovereignty issue, too, is a big thing now. If you want to have control over what they put in there, what they eat and how it's grown and where it comes from. And so there's a lot of innovation going on and there's a lot of transition happening in the food bank world. But our goal should be to get to a place where we don't need food banks. Yeah. We are not there for a whole bunch of reasons, but that's the goal that we ought to try to reach. Yeah. And maybe it's creating a roadmap that steps us to getting to where you are talking about and ultimately creating systems where there are market forces at play, where if people had cash, stores would pop up to serve them in places where there aren't stores. We had a lot of conversations with folks who were on SNAP and other supports during the pandemic and just following them and asking them what they're eating. And there's one grandmother who talked to us who said, look, right now, nobody else is making money in the family. So I have SNAP and I and I think she also would get a food box delivered from the food banks. And once she had allocated the food out to her grandchildren and to her children, there was, you know, there was a situation at one point where she ended up with just a banana, which would have been fine for her, except for that she had diabetes. And and so, right, so it just wasn't the right meal, if you can call that a meal, for her. And so it's, I think it's really important that people have choice in these cases, right? Because we have so many people who have these underlying chronic conditions because of what they've been eating that once they're talked into this notion that food can also reverse that, that they are able to access the food that can help them treat those conditions. I, I agree. You know, and I, I just, and I think it, it just, it brings more dignity to everything. And go back to that example in, in Harlem, I mean, you know, some of the challenges we have is introducing people to food that they're not used to, right? Because depending on where they lived, they may just be eating stuff that's not particularly good for you. Making sure that we, you know, we can familiarize people with, you know, alternatives out there is, is really important. And again, it, 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 that's why it's more than just about, here, here's a bag of fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, you know, not everybody knows what to do with everything. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with kale, right? <laughs> and it's the dignity and respect of helping people meet this moment. You know, that's why in, in SNAP, I'm really happy with the Healthy Incentives Program, where you get more for your SNAP dollar if you go to a farmer's market and buy fresh fruits and vegetables. I was at a public school in, in Washington, D.C. the day before the conference, and D.C. Central Kitchen has a partnership with one of the schools in a really challenging neighborhood, and they're trying to introduce 
fruits and vegetables more and more to these young kids. So the day I was there was squash. And so in between classes, they have these little plates with three different types of squashes. One roasted with olive oil, one with a little vinaigrette on it, and one with a little Parmesan cheese on it. And the kids walk through, they take take up three bites, and then they vote for what they want. Yeah. And whatever gets the most votes is what they have next week as their vegetable. And what they were telling me is that it's just like everybody eats their vegetables because they voted for that. It's their choice. Yeah. It's not what we're giving them. They have some choice. And I think whether it's young people or older people, choice is important. I think choice is so important. We forget that kids are very discerning, but that it's not that they don't like things that are also good for them. It's like they like particular things just like the rest of us. Speaking of school food, I want to talk about big food. You know, the producers, because I think along this timeline of over the past 50 years where people have gotten sicker, even though there's been a bigger focus by government on health and wellness and nutrition and education, we've gotten sicker. And I believe that in part, you know, it's it, there's a problem with the amount of stuff that comes in boxes in airtight containers and and is prepackaged and is preserved. And that there's there's something there that's causing this overwhelming increase in obesity and heart disease and type 2 diabetes and other chronic conditions in this country. And yet these are massive players, right? It's the same thing as the tobacco industry years ago, which we ultimately had to create rules around and warnings and et cetera. Do you see this a similar thing happening here eventually with big food? Or is that just too huge a juggernaut to dance with? Well, I think we have to address some of the realities of big food. And because of the lack of checks and balances, we're tolerating pushing food on people that is not good at all for them. I mean, if I bought a bag of potato chips in Massachusetts and I bought the same bag of potato chips, the same brand in Europe, the ones in Europe are healthier for me because there's less sodium in them because that's the requirement. Like, why is that? I mean, how do we even tolerate that? I get it. Salt is supposed to be addictive and you'll want to have 100 bags, but come on. If you do that, you know, you're going to end up with a whole bunch of other challenges, right? So we need some rationality in our food system. Two, we need better labeling in a way where people can understand what it is. You shouldn't have to be a chemist to be able to figure out whether this is good for you. The average person doesn't know what the, you know, appropriate amount of sodium or sugar or whatever, you know, is okay for you or not. So we, we're going to make it, we have to, we have to make it simpler. And we have this with truth in advertising. I mean, my mother was, you know, went shopping a couple of months ago and she said, you know, trying to eat better. And she said, look, I bought this. It says natural. I said, that means nothing. She said, I, I, well, does it mean, doesn't mean organic or does it mean, you know, good for you? Because it says natural. It means nothing, right? It's, it's deceptive. And that really is scandalous, I think. Again, if you want to make bad choices, fine. Mm-hmm. Right. I, but... But for, it should be, but for people who are trying to make better choices, we should make it easy. I'm, I'm hoping that post-conference that there'll be some discussion, especially coming out of Health and Human Services, about this issue of these food companies and, and how they push really bad stuff on us and how we need some more clarity in terms of labeling and how we ought to maybe have better standards in terms of content. Yeah. No, I saw that, and I thought that was really terrific. You know, speaking of the conference, I, I want to thank you for including Russ Wilson, who's our executive 
director here at the foundation in the conference. And he was on a panel that was moderated by Bill Frist, who is fantastic and I think is a heart surgeon also. So he's seen the effects of this up front. And he talked about that a little bit. Uh, they That particular panel talked about pilots. And so he had Ross talking about the pilot that we ran in BPS that ended up extending to 125 schools. It has schools now are able to scratch cook meals every day. They employ three times as many people locally as they did before. We think choice has a big part of this, but kids love it. You know, rates have went up in terms of people who are accessing food. Discipline cases in schools went down. It's a very successful program. So there are 50 million kids, at least, in America that qualify for, especially if you move to universal school meals, but 50 million kids in America attending public schools who could take advantage of the subsidies provided by the U.S. government around school food. It feels to me like like we should be talking more about how this could be the largest health intervention ever in the country, right? Where you've got the majority of kids, all we got to do is feed them well and they will naturally develop habits. We can teach them how to cook. That's like a bonus, but they'll also develop tastes for these things. Cause we don't, I mean, it's amazing. No one really argued with the changes. They, you know, they went from prepackaged processed food in the kitchens to these beautiful lines. And most kids were, I mean, almost all kids were like deeply excited by it, you know, by so it wasn't that they were bummed out that they got whole real food uh, suddenly. But anyway, my question is, so they were talking about pilots and, and when they're successful, how do we scale them? And I'm curious what you think, you know, what what role should the should the national government play in that? And what role should states and localities play in trying to scale, like really noticing like you talked about the guy in L.A. Like, what? how do we notice those things that are working? And who helps scale those things so that they become really sticky and more than, like, a tiny part of the country? What I what I, we want to have happen in the aftermath of this conference is that on the federal level, you know, the federal agencies that oversee some of these programs actually come and see them in person and highlight the fact that they're working and see what we can do on the federal level to scale them up. Now, if we can't get all that we need to get, then we need to go to the state level and say, you need to help participate in this because you have a role. And by the way, you know, if we do this right, we're going to save money because kids who are eating better in school are going to learn, right? And the behavioral problems go down and all the stuff that you just mentioned. So uh, there's a role for everybody. I mean, look, on the on the universal free meals stuff, I mean, I don't know whether you know we can get the political will like in a, you know the next year to pass a you know national bill to provide free meals to everybody. But if we can't, then as we're working toward that, every state should move in that direction. Massachusetts just did a year additional on, on universal meals. We ought to make it permanent. And by the way, on the federal level, we ought to be reimbursing schools more per meal than we are. We have in the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, I have a provision in there that increases reimbursement for school uh, breakfast and lunch because then it gives local communities a little bit more flexibility to maybe source locally to help some of our local uh, farmers or restaurants. And it gives you an opportunity to be a little bit more creative. There's a role for everybody. And there was a lot of private commitments that were made for the private sector, I mean, over $8 billion in commitments. Some of that is just money to go to in, in good projects. We ought to be using that to expand good projects wherever they may exist. So the maddening thing is we all know what we need to do. 
The challenge is going to be is is the political will. And I tell people all the time, you know, that hunger and even nutrition insecurity is a political condition, right? We we know what to do. We have the money. We have the food. We have the infrastructure. We we have models. We have everything, but we've lacked the political will. And I think this is coming out of this conference. I hope there is the. I felt the intensity there. The people really want to go out and run with this. This is an opportunity, and we cannot blow it. Well, you know, we, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait another fifty years until we refocus on this issue. We're focusing. The president of the United States said this is a priority. This is a priority. He's asked for an all of government, you know, approach to dealing with this. We need to keep him at his word, and then we need to get our you know federal legislators and state legislators and our local city councils and select boards and school committees to do what they need to do. But this is a big deal, right? And if we get the school stuff right, school meals right, that's a huge, it's a huge deal. chunk, right, of, of, of what we need to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the last thing I want to do, I want to throw some ideas out at you. They're not mine. They're just, they're, well, I agree with them, but I want, I want you to react to them and say, you know, this is good, bad. It's partially good. It'll never happen because just kind of rapid fire. You don't have to go too deeply into them, but um, these are things we hear all the time. So, okay. First one, tax big food. Like we tax cigarettes on a per ounce basis, like what has been done successfully in Berkeley, California. Not a bad idea, but politically very difficult. Okay. Uh, increase funding for schools that use at least 75% whole real ingredients and are prepared and cooked locally and uh, in school kitchens or by local restaurants with a bonus for those who use locally grown ingredients. I, I, I love the idea. I really do. As I said before, I mean, when we talk about solving these problems, we ought to be thinking about community building. So it's not just someone comes in and airdrops an idea, right? You're, 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 we're involved in the entire community, but I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And do you think that would come from the national government or do you think that would have to be a state? Certainly, I think, you know, if we're talking about pilots, yeah. you know, initially, you know, yeah, I yeah. do. I mean, yeah. we gotta, we, those are things, those ideas we got to be pushing. Yeah. Okay. Allow prepared foods to be covered by SNAP dollars. So I guess hot meals no, right now are not covered by SNAP. Yeah. Right. I, I agree with that. We're going to have to figure out how to do it. But I mean, one of the things I've learned by traveling across the country is there are a lot of people who are who actually have apartments that do not have kitchens. Right. And so, you know, prepared meals are essential. So we need to figure out how to how to make that a reality. But I favor that. Yeah, I'm so, it's, it's amazing. I was ta- speaking of BMC. I was talking to a doctor over there who treats diabetes patients. And he said to me, Jill, it's unbelievable. I'm working with this one guy who lives in low-income housing, and he has lost 60 pounds. And he needs to lose about 90 pounds. But we can, we're already seeing like it impact positively his diabetes. And he said the problem is he has a microwave oven, and that's it. He's like, you know, if I could prescribe two burners... This guy would be like off and running. He'd be cooking so much more, eating so many more healthy things. He's like these tiny little like adjustments to what it can be covered are also kind of this, that wasn't one of the ideas. Just came as a as no, a but, but but it's a, it's an important point. I mean, and, and you know, Project Bread is working. You know, uh, in collaboration with the state and with uh, we talked about this at the uh, East Boston Community Health Center about saying you know what what you may need to be able to make the transition. To a healthier, you know, lifestyle is a refrigerator. Yeah. Or you may need a, you know, a pan to, you know, to be able to cook something. Whatever it is, you know, we ought to understand that whatever is missing, we ought to be able to fill in yeah. what's missing. Yeah. 
Totally. Okay, two more. For right now, while we're in this inflationary state, increase reimbursement in school food to account for the inflationary costs of production and transportation of school food. Yeah, I, I, we're going to be fighting for that. And yeah. again, I, we, and if we get a child nutrition bill passed, you know, we have an uptick in reimbursement for each meal, but absolutely, especially during these inflationary times. Yeah. And okay, last one, double down on programs like the child tax credit and summer EBT to get more discretionary income into the hands of families living in difficult circumstances. Absolutely. And we had the child tax credit, then we, then it, it lapsed. We need to get it back. I mean, we saw child poverty decrease uh, significantly, and most of the, those benefits went into, you know, buying good food for people. So absolutely. Uh, we're going to be fighting for that. And look, I mean, obviously, we have to see what happens in the midterm elections. But the deal is, those are all things that are good. Even the first one, which I said was politically difficult, is a good thing for us to, to, to look at. Look, we need to think out of the box and differently. And I said to somebody yesterday, you know, if we were to design a healthcare system from scratch, it wouldn't be the one we have right no, now. Right. And so, you know, but we have what we have. Yeah. And change is challenging and difficult. But we need to push for change. Individuals will benefit. I mean, our fellow citizens will benefit. And if you don't care about that, and all you care about is the bottom line, you'll save a boatload of money too. So everybody wins. That's right. Thank you so much for doing this today. It's always so much fun to talk about food. And it was really fun to talk to you about it. So thank you for everything you're doing. Well, thank you. And thank you for your leadership on this issue and all the stuff that you're doing. You're, you're one of the models that we hold up. So thank you. Oh, you're great. Well, it was, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Representative Jim McGovern. Representative McGovern has spent his career as a national leader on food access, and we're grateful for his insight and guidance in shepherding a renewed national commitment to addressing not just hunger, but malnutrition across the United States. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.